Welcome to the Crossroads Church Sermon Podcast. The following message is meant to help intersect your road with God's road. Crossroads Church gathers to discover God, grow in Him, and reach out to others. For more information, visit crossroadsstjames.life. Praise God. Let's get into our message today. Today, we are actually going to be finishing up our, our look in the book of Zechariah. And uh, this is one of the more uh, difficult passages uh, of Scripture to kind of truly get a hold of, and that is Zechariah chapter 14, the last chapter. In fact, it's been noted, so you all know Martin Luther, right? He's the one that he founded the Augsburg churches or something that turned into the Lutheran church. And uh, Martin Luther wrote two commentaries on the book of Zechariah. One was in Latin, and one was in his native tongue of German. And in the Latin one, he writes it, gets it all done, and totally skips, cuts out chapter 14. Doesn't even touch it. He gets done with chapter 13, closes the book, and says, here, buy my book. And that was it. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't even touch chapter 14. So a year later, when he decides to go ahead and, and do the German translation, the German uh, version of the commentary, he includes chapter 14. But at the very beginning of chapter 14, he writes, I must throw my hands up in despair because I have no idea what the author is talking about. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's Martin Luther. I mean, a, a pretty strong man of God. And uh, he had a hard time with, with chapter 14 of, of Zechariah. Uh, part of the reason it's difficult is because this is a part of Scripture that is what we would call apocalyptic. It's end time stuff. And uh, it can be very difficult Reading apocalyptic literature, we can get kind of stuck on what we're trying to figure out is figurative language and literal language. Is this, is this going to happen specifically, or is this just figuratively? Is this just something we're supposed to think about? Uh, you know, those kinds of things. And trying to grasp the message of what the Lord is showing to us can kind of take a back seat sometimes as we try to figure out exactly what's going to happen when that's not the truth. What we want to figure out is what is the Lord trying to say to us? Now, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Apocalyptic language is very different. In the New Testament, when it comes to apocalyptic language and it comes to the end time stuff, there's an urgency to it. You know, be ready. Don't, you know, don't be sleeping. Don't be, you know, like a thief in the night is Jesus going to come. You know, it's, it's, it's very urgent. It's very, you better be paying attention. You better wake up. The Old Testament, though, it's more of like, a, hey, Look at all this crazy stuff that's going to happen at the end. Isn't that amazing? And why is it that why is it so kind of more relaxed? Because well, Jesus still had to come. And granted, these guys didn't know in the Old Testament. We've talked about this many times. The Old Testament didn't know that there were going to be two comings. Jesus was going to come the first time, then Jesus was going to come a second time. So they were able to kind of be laid back and just say, hey, look at all this crazy stuff that's going to be happening when this all ends. When the Lord finally says, we're done with the earth and this is how it's going to happen and y'all are going to be living in heaven and all that good stuff. So you have that difference and, you know, the urgency does not exist with the Old Testament. It does exist with the New Testament. And so... You, you kind of have this, this intriguing look at apocalyptic language when it, when it comes to the Bible. Um, so the urgency, though it doesn't exist with the Old Testament, um, we, 
we need to make sure that we don't misinterpret that uh, that lack of urgency as a lack of symmetry. We can't look at it and say, well, it doesn't connect. It does connect. A lot of the things that we see in apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament, we can trace some of that into the New Testament, into like the book of Revelation and some of uh, the Thessalonian letters and, and those kinds of things. Now, listen, it would be very difficult and time-consuming to line up everything within the apocalyptic genre of the Bible, stick it in a nice box, put a bow on it and say, look, we've got it all figured out. It Actually, it's impossible. We, we really can't do that. We kind of have to just take it as it is and say, Lord, how do you want us to hear this? How do you want us to see this? Thank you for letting us know that these things are going to be happening. Now, what do we do with it? Where does it go? Uh, when we look at these things in the Old Testament, some things are mentioned a few times in various writings, like Jesus coming down on the Mount of Olives. And some things are mentioned by only one prophet. You'll only see one thing. And one of those things we're going to see today, um, people's eyes and tongues rotting out of their mouths and eye sockets. That's not mentioned elsewhere in apocalyptic language. Uh, but, but for today, that's what we're going to see. So a lot of it is, it, it's so kind of scattershot, and sometimes it can be very hard and difficult to understand. Uh, but there is a message there, and we need to see this. So today, as we look at this, we're not going to take this apart and do a real deep study of how it lines up with other apocalyptic messages. Instead, we'll look at what Zechariah wrote and how it applies to us and maybe add some of that urgency uh, that we see in the New Testament because we are significantly closer to the time that Zechariah wrote about today than he was when he wrote it. We're very much closer than he was. He's about 2,500 years before us. So uh, we're, we're going to look at that today and, and do that. So as we do that, if you have your Bibles, open up to Zechariah chapter 14 or turn on your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. And I just want to give you a, a, a heads up. Um, I use the English uh, standard version of the Bible. So you're going to get some vivid, kind of difficult language right at the beginning here. Uh, don't let it, uh, you know, throw you off. We're, we're going to talk about that today. Zechariah chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go in out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Uh, so we'll stop there first. Uh, whether any of this is literal or figurative is really anyone's guess until that day comes. Uh, we don't know if this is an actual battle in which they're lining up in Jerusalem, and, and at some point it, it, it's taken over, and, and what happens uh, as described, actually happens. We don't know if it, if that's literal or figurative, and it it, it, it technically kind of doesn't matter right at the moment. Uh, but what is highly agreed upon in this is that this is a view of the world at ease because it thinks it's winning. The world looks at this, and, and when you look at wars, especially in the Bible, and I say especially in the Bible, but actually we still see it currently today, this is how you acted. When you won a battle, when you won a war, you went in, you plundered the houses, and sadly enough, women were raped. That's what happened. I know it's a hard word to say. I know it's not a fun thing to talk about. It's not something you want to discuss. But that's what the world does when it wins. It used to do it back in the Bible. And guess what? Like I said, it still happens today, sadly enough. And I've heard plenty of stories of veterans from various wars, World War II, Vietnam, Korea. Uh, I mean, even... 
even the more modern ones in you know, Iraq and those kinds of things. And some of the atrocities that have happened that, that were just spoken of, they still happen today. There's, there's a piece of me that's like, you know what? I think I'm good with the drone that can take a laser and, and guide a missile right into a bunker instead of half of the atrocities that we hear about after a, a battle or, or a war is won. It's almost like we don't need to look at the whites of eyes, any, uh, the whites of anyone's eyes anymore because we do some very horrific things as human beings when we think that we've won and, and we're so amazing and awesome. But what we want to see here today is this idea that there's going to be a time when the world is going to think it's winning. It's, we're ahead. You people that believe in God, and, and now for us, now that we're you know, way past the time of Zechariah, for those of you that would believe in Jesus Christ, man, we're winning. And we are, we are whooping up rear end, and we are, we are, we are giving it to you. It's, it, this is a really rough time for those that would believe in God. And that's, that's kind of the idea that we're, we're supposed to get. The world seems to be winning and, and is pressing on and, and doing what's supposed to happen. But look at this. The Lord turns this on a dime in verse 3. Verse 3 through verse 11 says this, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives that shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azul, or Azul, sorry, uh, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is, uh, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but as evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and the half of them to the western sea. It shall continue to, uh, in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day the lord will be one and his name one the whole land shall be turned into a plain from geba to ramon south of jerusalem but jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of hananel to the king's wine presses and it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction jerusalem shall dwell in security so this is where it gets kind of messed up because the timings all goofy. You've got Jesus coming down, Mount of Olives splits, everything's happening. Hey, some of you are coming to this valley, some of you are doing this. The the the, the city of Jerusalem is is coming up and you know is is being brought up and, and then we almost see this aspect of of perfection and peace and and an amazing time. So you have this time when the world is gathered together and they've come to Jerusalem. Christ has actually brought them there. God has brought them there. And uh, they're, they're thinking they're winning. And then all of a sudden, the Lord is going to come down. It's going to be Jesus, because it's mentioned before, the, you know, as, as he was ascended, hey, just as you saw him go up, he's going to come back down. Um, they don't know that yet. They don't know that it's Jesus that's going to be doing that. But we do. we got hindsight. Um, so... These are the things that are going to be happening. So the Lord prepares to fight and sets the battlefield as his feet again touch the Mount of Olives. The Mount splits, making a valley uh, in earthquake fashion. Very terrible earthquake. If you've been with us, we talked about the earthquake during the days of King Uzziah. Uh, it was very powerful. It's not actually mentioned in the Bible. It just It's, it's mentioned in this way. Hey, that earthquake was really bad. Um, and then there's this dim light 
like dusk. He's like, it's not going to be like any other day. It's not going to be day. It's not going to be night. There's going to be like as if the sun is setting and it's going to be this dim light as the Lord prepares to fight. It's not going to be like this bright, hey, look at this. Look at, you know, everybody take a peek at what's going on here. It's, it's, it's going to be very different. And then living waters will flow from Jerusalem, uh, probably in the direction of Medi- the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. That's what it says, you know, the Eastern Sea and the Western Sea. But who knows? By this time, the world could look a lot different because we're not too sure when this is going to be. Uh, but the land is leveled out as a plain. And then again, Jerusalem is lifted up and, and almost enjoys a perfect peace. Now, if... If you've ever studied end time prophecy and those kinds of things, and you look at the book of Revelation, again, this is where it gets really kind of all goofy on us because we're like, the timing is all weird. It's like he's coming down to fight and there's no fighting and all of a sudden Jerusalem is lifted up and all these different things. Again, it's not so much that we have to figure out the timing and figure out what's literal and figurative. What we need to look at is, okay, Lord, you're doing something big, and it's going to be huge at that time. So the world thinks it's going to be winning, and then you're going to come down. And then all of a sudden, this is when Jesus, who is now the only king on the earth, as it's said in there, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. So he's going to come down, and he's going to be the only king on the earth. He's going to be one, and it's, it's, you know, it's giving uh, prophecy to you know, Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, though, though we look at it as the, you know, the triune Godhead, it's really you know, God is one. He comes down, he's going to do this bad. And then the Lord starts to whoop up on the enemies who previously thought they were winning. That we saw in verse 1 and 2. Look at verse 12. Again, we're going to get some pretty vivid language here. Get ready, folks. A little bit of rated R action for you here. Verse 13. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each... Oops. I jumped ahead. Verse 12. Sorry about that. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So pretty gruesome stuff if you've ever seen, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Harrison Ford. Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. You guys remember Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember that one? They open the ark and what happens? Everybody melts. Remember that in great 80s? Ah! You know, it's, it's like tomato sauce falling off of fake skeletons. I don't know what it is. But, you know, but, but this is what the Lord just described. This is, this is what the battle is going to partially look like. They're, they're standing there. Their skin, their eyes, and their tongue rots out of just rots while they're standing there. Some people think that, well, who knows, maybe a, an atomic bomb goes off. Cause I mean, that's, that's what it looks like apparently now that we know what an atomic bomb looks like, you know, is, is that what's going to happen? I don't know. It says the Lord's going to do it. So I think he's just going to be like, here you go. Flume, here's a bunch of rotten flesh all over your body. And then as he does in so many other battles in the 
Old Testament, there's going to be this, you know, this, this horrible, this horrificness over everybody that what do they do? They start raising their hands against each other. As my flesh is rotting, I'm going to come and beat the tar out of you. I'm not, not beat the one that's making all this happen. And he throws them into utter confusion. And then to, to throw it all into the mix, he takes the animals and says, listen, you're for them. You're going you're to be busted out by this plague also. And it, it's just this, this crazy, horrific look at what's going on. Gruesome stuff and similar to what we've seen in other parts of the Old Testament. And like I said, it will affect even the animals of the enemy army. And all the wealth of the enemy will be taken. Everything will be taken. You're not going to have anything. You're going to be destroyed. And all the stuff that you have is going to be taken. The Lord will take that. So, so that's the battle. And then we... We get a time of celebration in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. Now, that's, that's weird. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we don't do the Feast of Booths anymore. Uh, a lot of the feasts were accomplished when Jesus Christ came to the earth. They, we mentioned there's seven feasts in uh, Leviticus, I think chapter 23 uh, is where those are located. And the Feast of Booths is the last one. Most people think that all of them except this one was, was accomplished at the time that Christ comes to earth and through his death and resurrection. And, and then, of course, on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming down. But then this Feast of Booths one, they think that it's going to wait. So that's possibly why the Lord mentions this. Now, there's sacrifices. What in the world are sacrifices needed for? If this is the end times, it's, we, don't, we don't have sacrifices for sins anymore. So what's up with the sacrifice? It must just be the way God's going to celebrate. Again, as Martin Luther said, I just have to throw my hands up in despair and be like, I really don't know exactly how this works, what's going on there, and, and those kinds of things. And you just kind of look at it, and you just have to understand there's going to be a time of celebration. It's going to be a time in which people praise God. We really don't know what it means that, you know, the rains aren't going to fall on those that don't come to Jerusalem. It's, it's kind of lost in, well, what does it mean by Egypt? Why is Egypt mentioned here again? And why, is, why are they, you know, singled out and those kinds of things? What we want to concentrate on for today is mainly the idea of the celebration and the time that will happen for those that would follow God. Then with all of this, he closes it up. The Lord shows the holiness and the righteousness that is involved in all of this in verse 20. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, my version said traitor. Yours might say Canaanite. The whole purpose of this is to say, listen, this is going to be the ultimate holiness. A lot of us, we haven't seen it. 
uh, the purpose, the people in the Old Testament actually may have saw, may have seen the the idea of the holiness of the Lord better than we could, because they had the tabernacle and the temple, which was a picture of of, of the coming heavens that that we would know of, and so they kind of understand the idea of holiness and and how that worked and how you had to wash the sacrifices and how you had to cleanse yourself and all those kinds of things, and so when holiness and righteousness becomes involved and it shows this, the Lord is saying, listen, this is going to be an absolutely pure area. Everything that we're doing is, is going to be amazing. It's going to be significant. It's going to be powerful. And it's, it's going to be like nothing we've ever seen before, especially us as New Testament believers. We may feel it. We may understand the fact that our lives have been changed. Our lives have been saved because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because of his blood that was shed. But, but it's, it's, it's going to be quite different at that time at the end. Now listen, as I mentioned earlier, there's some symmetry here with the book of Revelation. Living water flowing from Jerusalem. Everyone from around the world coming to Jerusalem to celebrate it. The Bible talks about that. When I was a kid, um, we were looking at Revelation. We were talking about how when the Lord makes the new earth, everybody's coming, going to Jerusalem to, to celebrate on a yearly basis. And a, a buddy of mine, he just... He really wanted to make sure that we could fly. When we get to the other side of eternity, his name was Pastor Buck, David Buckley, the the missionary that we support. Are we going to be able to fly? I just really want to fly. And so we just pandered to him and said, we're probably going to fly because we're going to have to get to Jerusalem pretty quick to be able to do that. So, yeah, we're going to fly. Why not? Because we're going to have to do this on a regular basis and celebrate because if not, apparently we're going to get some drought or something. So make sure you can. I I don't know if we're going to fly or not, but it's fun to talk about. It's fun to think about. But you see these different things that happen. Jerusalem is lifted up, all those kinds of things. Really what we're seeing here is a view of the battle of Armageddon followed by the millennial reign of Christ. pretty much covering Revelation chapter 18 through Revelation 20, verse 6. So you can see the symmetry there. You can see it's kind of connected. Again, some of it is a little wonky, and we're kind of like, man, what's the timing on this? How does this work? Lord, I really don't get it. Help me understand it. And there's going to be times when you might get it. There's going to be times when it's like, I don't think I totally understand it. But we have to figure out exactly what the message might be. And so as I'm looking at this this week, I'm like, Lord, you're going to have to help me because I, I feel kind of like Martin Luther. And like, I don't know what to say. Half the time when it comes to apocalyptic language, all I feel like the message is, is like, listen, you better get your life straight because that looks really bad. So you might want to know God so that your, your skin and your eyeballs and your tongue don't rot from your, from your body. I mean, that sounds like a good plan to me. So find Jesus. I mean, that's usually what I want to just want to say, because that's, that's how it usually looks at. But, but as I look at this deeper and thinking about this, you know, what is the connection that we can make and, and how often, you know, do we look at the world today like we saw in verses 1 and 2. How often do we look at the world and think, I think they're winning. I really think they're winning. Even when we think we take a step in the right direction, it sometimes seems like we're taking two steps back. The U.S. Supreme Court says, hey, no more abortion. So what do the states do? Okay, then we'll let you do it. Who cares about what the U.S. Supreme Court says? I even just saw an article today about an individual who started a church and uh, called it the oxymoronic name of the Church of Potential Life. And they worship abortion. That's what they do. 
I don't, I didn't, they didn't have a little script of it, but, but I had read about it. And, and this person who started this church takes the words of the Supreme courts, their, their, uh, their, their opinions, you know, that, that got leaked and takes them and, and twists them to mean something else. I, I don't know. Like I said, they didn't have an example in the article that I read, but this person has twisted that. And so now they worship abortion and, and they worship, uh, the autonomy of, of women and all those kinds of things. Uh, it's out in California. So that explains a lot, right? Anyways, but no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, it is in California. I'm not kidding about that. It is in California, but, but you see that kind of thing and it's like, man, it, one step forward and, and then it seems like another two step back. You know, various political and moral agendas flood our school all the way from elementary all the way into college. All sorts of crazy thoughts and ideas. Just think whatever you want to think and let's see what happens. And we can see the, the, the terribleness that can come out of that. Supposed Christian churches, they affirm various sins and completely ignore the word of God. Is that what the Word of God says? No, but we don't care. We just want to do it how we want to do it. We want to get people into our seats. We want to get people to, to give more money to those kinds of things. And so as we look at this, we can't help but sit back and think, Lord, I think the world is winning. The world really does seem like it's winning. They're right on the gates there, and they're just enjoying the plunder. They love it. They're, they're having a great time. What about us? And then as time keeps passing by, we can get more and more discouraged to the point that we suffer from disbelief. We read something like Zechariah 14 and think, there's no way that's going to happen. It can't happen. Look at this world that we live in. Look at everything that's going on. How do we know that these words, specifically from Zechariah, will come to be? Well, for us, friends, we've been reading this a little bit. Zechariah has a really good track record. We know that the words that he spoke to the Israelites of the time were an encouragement to them. It helped them finish the temple. Ezra told us, you know, him and Haggai, as they, as they gave those words, it encouraged those folks, and they got to work, and they did what they were supposed to do and followed it. And then he had, he's had quite a few prophecies, very specific prophecies fulfilled. Two weeks ago, we discussed his fulfillment of the prophecy of the triumphal entry. Here comes your kicking on the foal of a donkey. He, he, he prophesies that and happens. Last week, we discussed the very specific prophecy of the 30 pieces of silver thrown in the temple, the piercing of Jesus, and the scattering of the sheep, let alone the fulfillment of the prophecy that every time a Jewish person looks upon Jesus' pierced body, mourns, and then repents, that prophecy is fulfilled. So prophecy after prophecy has been fulfilled by Zechariah. So Zechariah has, has, has a pretty good track record. So we can look at this and say, I know this is going to happen, even though the world looks like it's winning. The Lord will rule and reign. Jesus even discusses it a little bit more in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. But concerning that day, this is the day that we're talking about. Behold, there will be a day for the Lord. But concerning that day, an hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah... So will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is pretty much saying, listen, what Zechariah said in 14, 1 and 2, I mean, granted, they didn't have it like that back then, but anyways... He's saying, listen, the world is going to be at ease. It's going to be business as usual. Now, granted, God 
Jesus doesn't go into detail. He just says they're going in, you know, they're giving each other into marriage and all these kinds of things. He doesn't get into specifics because I can't imagine what the disciples would have thought. So the world is just going to be as it's going, as it's doing it. You know, they're going to have drag queens reading stories to kids in libraries. What the heck is a drag queen? Some of them might be like, what's a library? What Reading? I can't even read. How are people in the future reading like this? You know, they see these kinds of things. It's going to be business as usual. It's going to be business as normal. Everything's going to be like, and then what happens? Boom. Jesus comes. And then it's going to happen. And there's another part where Jesus says, and this is the part where we really need to pay attention. When he comes back, when that happens, will he find faith? Will he find faith? Will he find people who will say, yeah, the world seems to be winning, but he is going to win it all in the end. It's going to be him who overpowers all of it and wipes everything out. Everything is business as usual, and then, boom, it's done. And God comes in, Jesus comes in, the Holy Spirit comes in and wipes it all out and makes everything new. Let's close this message today looking at a psalm that kind of puts it all in one psalm. Psalm chapter 73, a guy by the name of Asaph, he was a musical leader. Uh, I can't remember the king. This is not one of the ones that are written by David. Psalm 73 says this. It's a little long, but I think you're going to understand it as we read it. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In layman's turns, friends, it was like, listen, I almost left God. Because I saw how successful the wicked people are, the people that don't follow God. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell uh, out through, fa- uh, through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So really quick there, friends. He sees everything. He sees the wicked and, and their success and, and how good it is. And, and he's like, I, I can't even think about this. I can't, even, I can't even figure it out. Why is it that they succeed? And I'm sitting here going through all the garbage that I am going through. So what did I decide to do? I decide to go to God. I go to the sanctuary, and then I discern the end. Verse 18, truly, 
You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, uh, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless... I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He puts them on a slippery slope. It's going to come to an end is what he says. But listen, friends, don't read this incorrectly. We don't read this to gloat. We don't look at this to gloat and say, ha ha, you're wicked, you're going to hell. That's not what it's about. It is an aspect to be encouraged and say, Lord, you will win in the end. You are the strength of my life. You are my portion forever. You provide my every need. You provide my every step. You give me foundation. You give me peace. You give me understanding. Those people don't have that. They don't have that understanding. They don't have that assurance. Their fortune could be here today, and then the Lord could take it tomorrow, and they would have no clue what to do because they don't have the foundation of God. And so this is what Asaph is saying. This is what Zechariah is trying to show us. This is what Jesus is telling us. Listen, be ready, be prepared. Don't be discouraged by so much that, that you fall into disbelief that all of this is not going to happen. This is all going to happen assuredly. But at the same time, do not become arrogant. Do not become arrogant thinking, I'm great, I'm perfectly fine. You're the fool that's going to die and go to hell. That's not how that works. Because what did Asaph say at the end? But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So you don't read this thinking, ah, you're, you're stuck in a pit. No, look at what the Lord is doing for me. Sure, you may be comfortable right now. You may have wealth. You may have possessions. You may, you may even have a great family. You may have all sorts of great stuff. But I'm telling you right now, if you don't have God, and you don't follow his great works and his mighty deeds, whew, it's going to call all come out from underneath you, and you're going to fall. You're on a slippery slope because you do not have the foundation of the Lord God Almighty, the one and only Lord God Almighty. And so when we read a passage like Zechariah, we read the words of Jesus Christ as he says, listen, the world is going to be at ease. They're just going to be sitting there thinking like nothing's going to happen. And then boom, friends, you better believe it. You better understand it. Because once he comes, once he sets his feet on that Mount of Olives, once he says, oh, time's up, it's time to get this thing to end, the apocalypse is here, you better be ready. Because it's not going to be like it was for the people in the Old Testament. It is going to just be the first coming. And then he's going to die, and there's going to be at least 2,000 years. No, now it's going to be he's come, and it's done. And he better be ready. Don't allow your discouragement of the success that you see in the world, of, of the things that you see happening in this world, and like, my goodness, 
It seems like whatever I try to do, the world comes back and, and, and erases everything I've done. Do not be so discouraged by that that you would disbelieve, in, that you would not believe in the Lord anymore, that you would not believe in his power and his might to overcome all of those things because guess what? He's going to do it at some point. And the whole point of things going on right now is to encourage and, and build up those that would believe. So I want to encourage you today to stand firm, not to gloat. We don't gloat over the fact that, that God has saved us. I mean, Paul tells us, I've got nothing to brag about. I mean, I'm, I'm a sinner. There's nothing good in me. If it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'd, I'm dead. I'm dead. I've got nothing to brag about. The only thing I can brag about is that the Lord would love me so much to save me. This wretched person that I am, this horrible person that I am, that's all I've got. i got nothing to gloat on. But I am encouraged that the Lord would, would provide for me, that the Lord would build this up, and that the Lord would rescue me from his wrath, from his anger, from his fury that is going to happen. Do not be discouraged, friends, to the point of disbelief. In fact, don't be discouraged. Know that the Lord is going to pull through. This is going to happen. It may not be right now. It may not be this very second, this very instance. But God's timing is always perfect. It's always good. We may get impatient, and it's hard. And as I look at my kids, and I see the future, and I'm like, Lord, oh my goodness, help us. Just come. Just do it. Just step on the Mount of Olives right now. Take it. Hopefully we're all saved. Okay, it didn't happen. Anyways, in all seriousness, though, do not be so discouraged that it would break your faith in God. Stand with me today as we close this in prayer. Maybe you guys right now know, I mean, I've, I've talked with some of you, you know, at your jobs or at school or uh, in your activities and stuff, and, and you see people doing whatever, and it's like, oh, my goodness, why is that person getting the promotion? Why is that person getting a raise? Why is that person getting all of these different things? Why, is, why are these people succeeding? Lord, this just doesn't make any sense. I'm telling you right now, friends, take a great big deep breath right now and just say, God's in control. And it's hard. It's very difficult. But God is in control. So today as we pray, I want you to just go through that. God is in control. These things are going to happen. Lord, help me to stay the course. Help me to stay the course. Help me to declare of your wonderful works to hopefully save some of those people who I'm really ticked off at that are succeeding. That takes a lot but I encourage you to do it today.